Fabian Mendez grew up in France, but discovered his entrepreneurial vein in Latin America. That calling led to one of Brazil's biggest startups. Loggy became a unicorn back in 2019. Now it moves 300,000 packages every day across the country. But these numbers don't tell how hard the journey's been. Fabian had to convince early investors and adapt Loggy to regulations and new business models. In this episode, Fabian and I talk about his first startup and how that epic fail helped him when fundraising for Loggy. How the startup went from asset light to asset intensive and what Loggy's third phase looks like. Fabian's most humbling experience and what he's learned from transition from CEO to chairman. My name is Brian Reckworth and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. How are you spending your time these days, man? I mean, you just mentioned to me that executive chairman, I've been in that role before. It is a lot less intense than being CEO, but walk me through kind of how you're spending your days. So yeah, Brian, as you mentioned, I've been leaving the CEO role a few months ago. This after 10 years in the trenches as a co-founder, CEO of a big tech company in Brazil. And I'm taking a lot of time to, to with my son, to read, to meditate, to exercise, to travel a bit. To be honest, at first, it was really tough, much more tougher than anticipated. I think when you are hooked on the adrenaline and the dopamine of running a business, of building a business, of taking decisions all the time, it's really tough to, to then to resettle, to teach yourself how to fill your time with simple things, with meditation, with just reading and being less anxious. So, so it's a great reconditioning, to be honest. When I think about the role as a founder, I've talked about this before, but there's like really you have three roles. You're the founder, which is like culture and thinking about Vision. all those key things. Then there's the CEO, which is like, hey, I got to deliver on this quarter and what's the next year plan look like? And then as the chairman, a lot of times you've got to think as chair, you're thinking about the future. You're thinking about the long term. You're thinking about which when you're in the middle of running a company, particularly like a company that's hit certain level of growth and size, it's, it becomes super hard to think about all three of those things, right? That, can you relate to that? And is that something that you think about in terms of your evolved role? Yeah, completely. I think there is this huge dialectic between the day-to-day and having to run the business and meet the OKR and the financial results of the quarter. And that's a lot of pressure. And sometimes I guess this pressure from the day-to-day takes you away from the vision and takes you away from what really matters. So I think you are completely right and I completely relate to your statement, Brian. Were there times on the journey where you felt like you needed to focus more on one or the other. Walk us through a little bit of the evolution of Loggy, because if you look at your, your LinkedIn profile, you had, you had a previous business, Go James, and you co-founded that, ran that for a year, and then your description says epic fail. And then just a few months later, you founded Loggy. So talk a little bit about what happened there, and then maybe you could talk me through the eras of Loggy, if you were to kind of break it up into different eras. I started my career in the financial market, in M&A, doing slides and financial models. It was a great school for me, but when I was there, I always felt like a misfit because I think all my life I was a bit of a nonconformist. For me, after two, three years working in finance, building something from scratch was kind of the obvious thing to do. 
So, so in 2012, I founded GoJames, which was an Uber before Uber in Sao Paulo. So, so it was an epic fail. I mean, I did everything wrong from product design to from go to market. From, but we launched the product, it gained traction. Long story short, after a few weeks, we were shut down by regulation. Like that. So the, the taxi mafia came after us. We were securing a Series A, but when we got a term sheet, then the term sheet vanished because investors were, were spooked and afraid of this regulation aspect. And I had no other choice but to stop the business. So it was a really tough moment, but also... I managed to extract a lot of learning from that, particularly out of the importance of dealing with regulation in Latam, in Brazil, and to come along with a really consistent strategy. So, so I closed the business. I spent three days depressed in the couch of my best friend in Rio. Uh, and after this, I thought, wow, okay, so, so rather than delivering people or transporting people, which was the application of God James, Let's use the power of technology to deliver people, to deliver things, to transport goods. And ergo came with the idea of creating Logi with this vision of, of connecting Brazil, of creating this UPS 4.0 for the world, for Brazil and to reach you to, to deliver anything anywhere within the country. You mentioned that you learned some things in Go James that what was applicable that you learned that immediately applied to Logi? And talk us through a little bit about those kind of early days as you're building Loggy. All right. So a few learnings. I think the first one, as I mentioned, was the importance to come along with a regulation strategy. So in the case of GoJames, like two days after we launched, uh, the taxi mafia came after us. Uh, in the case of Loggy, I think we have to think a lot about how to deal and to construct a sustainable relationship with the drivers without having a relationship because I knew that it, this would be the end goal that the incumbents will use to come after me if eventually like, the business will work. And I was right. After I think one month after we launched, we received uh, this big injunction from Ministerio Público do Trabalho, which is the equivalent of the Department of Justice working on, on labor relationship, you know, because it was saying like, you can do what you do. You can use independent contractors to, to deliver things and et cetera, et cetera. And of course, over time, we were managed to prove them work, to prove them wrong. And we managed to defend ourselves very well and all the cases we got. But since day one, we came along with a really coherent and well thought strategy to, to shield ourselves from regulation risks. I think like a second key learning I got from GoJames was that when I created GoJames, at first I really thought that technology was a commodity and I could do an MVP, outsourcing everything, and then little by little like, we will internalize the team. I think I could not be more wrong uh, in retrospect. I think it was a key learning. And this is why when I created Logi, my first focus was when building the team was to find a great technical co-founder, Arthur, and to rework on bringing great engineering talent, great product talent, and great design talents. So I think it was a very important learning too. Walk us through those first like six months of the operations of Logi. What were you trying to accomplish? I know it was a long time ago, it was a decade ago, but 
What was what were you trying to prove, and what were the like the key insights? Was it clear from the very beginning? You're like, oh, this is going to work. Talk us through that. When I decided to create Loggy, you know, first thing I was broke, so, so I had put all of my personal money <laughs> into God James, and I was in the red, uh, both in France and Brazil, because I'm a French guy who happens to live in Brazil. So I was literally like Sheke special in the red in Brazil and in the red in France. So I was literally broke. But I had this strong vision. I knew that could work. And I also needed money. I needed to create an amazing team because I wanted to hire great tech talents and wanted to be able to start the business. To bootstrap everything, you also need a bit of liquidity. So so it was a crazy moment where you got this chicken and egg problem. No funding, you get no team, you get no funding and so forth. So it was tough, but it was also magical. And I always recall of this initial moment as... To be honest, one of the best moments in my life because so I was broke and I was dividing an apartment with my best with my best friend Ducho and uh, I was late of three rent with him, <laughs> but I went to see him and told him like, man, I got this idea. I really think it can work. And he told me like, man, don't worry about the rent. I got you. And also Ducho happened to to own. Uh, an advertising agency, a super cool one in Itai. And he told me like, and, and I'm also going to give you some space for you to start a company there. And out of the sudden, I had this amazing space, super cool, super cool agency, my own room to, and I started to pitch investors. And the funny thing is that because I had failed at GoGems and I was very candid about my failure and very transparent about all the things I did wrong, I managed to earn that trust. And in two weeks, I managed to assemble a really important seed round. At the time, it was $1 million. Now, nowadays, $1 million is nothing. But uh, back then in 2012, it was huge. And so I managed to get the commitment of some really good investors. And with that, I started to assemble the team. And it's crazy because I think a lot about entrepreneurship, it's about intelligence, grit. But, and consistency, uh, and consistency, but it's also about luck. And I think I was really lucky of having this friend at this moment of my life. I was very lucky to meet this subset of, of angel investors and seed investors. And so, yes, yeah, so I started to assemble the team. We put together a prototype in three, four months. Of course, it was not working. I was doing everything. I was doing sales, operation management, all the legal things, all the financial things. All the product which I loved. It was tough. I was not seeing friends. I was not going out. I was just working. But it was work with passion and it was a great time. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in some sense, your best friend was your first angel investor in some ways, right? Yeah. In the office space. Exactly. The, I want to double click a little bit on this trust thing that you mentioned, because I think that's a really interesting insight. You kind of turned in as the self-described uh, epic failure. And you turn that in as an opportunity to build trust. Why do you think that enabled you to land that initial million dollars? Was it clear that you had experienced something that gave you an insight into a, the problem? And why do you think that it built trust by sharing all of your kind of mistakes that you made? I think the essence of a good entrepreneur is curiosity. Right? Is the fact that you you look at things and you want to learn and you want to and uncover a problem and you want to keep learning and to keep solving things. And I think that always curiosity goes hand in hand with 
humility. Uh, and I mean, you can't really learn if you are not self-aware, if you're not able to paddle back if you see you commit a mistake. You have to be very curious, but so very humble and and be able to say to the people that you learn from your mistakes. I think this is, and overall, I think for an adult person, it's really tough to say that I was wrong. <laughs> it's, I think sometimes it's the hardest thing to say, actually. And when you come and see investors and say, this is why I was wrong, this is why I did wrong, and you show this sense of humility, which is actually a good way to untrust. Each time I started a board meeting at Logiesio, I was always very, I always started with, what keeps me awake at night, the problems with what we did wrong, you know, and, and you always keep the fluffy stuff for the end of the board or you don't even use it. So I think it, this was essential to combine curiosity and greed, but also with this sense of humility. I think this is as individual, not only as entrepreneur, something which allows you to gain trust. How do you walk the line of the balance of like projecting a lot of confidence in what you're able to do while at the same time balancing that humility? Did you feel like you always maintain that, that balance? And so what's the balance there that you need to have? And then talk about the evolution of the business as you grew. Right. So, so obviously I like to think that I was always balanced. I guess if you talk to other people, they will tell you the opposite. I think this is how it works. But I think you have to try your best all the time when it comes to being confident, you know, about, I mean, you have to be really clear in how you state your mission statement, your vision, and this is something you can accomplish in five minutes. And same way you are clear about your mission statement and your vision, you can also be very clear about what you are doing wrong. So, so, so I think it's just being transparent. And about the journey of the company, this has been an interesting when it comes to mission, vision versus the day-to-day, because when we started logging, I think we had this very coherent vision of connecting Brazil, you know, of, of really like, we knew that logistics was a key bottleneck to the Brazilian economy. And so we really wanted to harness the power of tech to create from scratch this UPS 4.0, to create from scratch this new Correios, which would be the equivalent of the USPS in the US. But as you can imagine, you won't be able to build a, a UPS 4.0 in one month or even a decade, and it takes a lot of time. So, so what was essential for us, and I think for everyone, when you want to tackle a big problem, is always to start with a niche, with a small subset of your problem, and try to first solve this niche and then grow from there. So, 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 so in our case, we started, although we wanted to connect Brazil and deliver, and deliver anything to anyone, we started with a really simple use case, which was super fast delivery within the city. So from A to B within Sao Paulo. So, so, so we started delivering documents, small packages, food, but always with this very simple logistics and simple product. It was kind of an Uber for, for motorbikes. It was like from A to B and up, A to B within the same city and it flies. There is no complexity operationally. Everything is asset light. In terms of AI, using of algo to optimize the problem, it's not a tough problem. It's from A to B. You just need to use mobile to do the allocation of drivers. So, so this is how we started in 2013. And based on this use case, we gained a lot of traction. So a few months after, we 
we launched, we managed to secure our Series A with Monashi, the amazing investors and partners, by the way. And, uh, but we wanted much more. We wanted to, to, once again, to connect Brazil and to connect Brazil to do from A to B, not within the city, but A to B anywhere within the country and to be able to deliver A to B everywhere within the country. This is when we things really started to get complicated, much more complicated because if you want to send the goods, let's say from Sao Paulo to a small city within the northeastern region of Brazil. You first need to pick up this package in Sao Paulo, then you need to bring it to a huge sortation facility where you're going to bundle packages together and you're going to create optimized routes within these big sorting facilities. Then you're going to transfer these routes on an airplane, on a truck, then come to a small hub, then a smaller hub to finally deliver with a motorbike driver or a small car within this remote City, you know, so, so, so you can see that out of the sudden from A to B within the same city, we went to A to B within the same country. And it was really hard because out of the sudden we need to operate physical facilities. We were not, we were no longer just a technology company. We were a technolo- technology company operating in the physical world. And we need to learn how to operate these, these sorting centers, these hubs much more complex problem. So, and as always, when you create a business plan, you know, so, so, so we forecasted the revenue of X and the cost of Y. And when we launched this product in 2015, like the revenue was 50% of X and the cost was 2XY. Not so, 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 so out of the sudden, we got a lot of burn and a lot of complexity. It was also really fascinating. And we managed over time to solve this problem. We managed to learn to connect. Uh, all of these facilities together, we managed to create this network covering all of the country. Now we, we deliver to 92% of Brazilian in the country of the size of Europe. So, so, so long story short, this has been a uh, story of the company from doing this, this Uber for motorboys in Sao Paulo to really this fully fledged uh, UPS for Porto in Brazil. The vision always clear from the very, very beginning of what you wanted to eventually become. And then at what point did you go from like the A to B? in neighborhoods in Sao Paulo to this kind of larger vision? This was always the vision that we built, that to connect Brazil. It has always been our, our motto. At first, we thought we could achieve it by being 100% asset light. So we thought, okay, we're going to use the sorting facilities of others. We're going to use everything from third parties. And in 2015, we realized that it was not possible, actually, but that sometimes on the value chain, on the logistics network, we need to own and operate some of the nodes ourselves. And so that was really important. It was like really a really frightening decision because we had to break this principle of being asset light. So we were mostly asset light, but a bit asset intensive too. So, so we became this hybrid company and I was really afraid of what would be the reaction. And I knew that was the right thing to do, but I was really afraid of the market sentiment. I would investors or prospect investors will react because no one like, no one likes being asset intensive. You can, you would rather be completely asset light, but we thought it was the right thing to do. And Hindsight, I think it was the best decision we ever take because by learning to operate these assets ourselves, we actually created a really strong mod around the business. 
But yeah, in a nutshell, I mean, we had clarity of vision. Sometimes you don't get clarity on, on execution, how to get there, you know, and, and you have these very defining moments along the way. What was the defining moment? Take me through the moment when you're like, uh-oh, we, this vision of asset light is not going to be possible if we want to achieve our mission. You said that you had that moment where you were concerned about what the investors would say. You pushed through because you knew it was the right thing. But maybe if you could give the insight of the moment where you're like, okay, we're going to make this leap. And like the first thing that you did when you decided to do that, when did it become clear it was the right thing to do? So end of 2014, we started to deliver for e-commerce companies. So, so we wanted to deliver within like the same region and, and the state of Sao Paulo. And the idea was to do it like directly from the warehouse of our customers. And we would send the drivers with the routes already optimized in the app and they would pick up everything there and deliver everything from there. You know? So I think it was a beautiful idea, but it was, we were actually like extremely wrong because of course, at a really small scale, okay, if you want to send 10 packages and get one driver to get to the warehouse of your customers to, 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 to deliver these packages following an optimized route, it makes sense. But what happens when you get one of the packages, 1,000 packages, out of the sudden you get a legion of motorbike drivers going to the dock of your customers. It becomes a mess. You lose the packages, your customers doesn't like you that much anymore, although you provide a good service because the operation complexity becomes exponential. After one month operating that way with a bit of customer feedback, we realized, okay, like the intuition was great on paper. It was terrible in practice. Let's reset. Let's try to see how we can solve the problem. And we looked at perhaps partnering with other companies, with more old school companies, but it was not getting traction. Like, I mean, it of a clash of cultures and, and we thought, okay, let's do it our way. Let's create these sorting facilities to absorb the complexity yourself and offer a really simple product to our customers, which is I'm going to be delivering fast everywhere, but we're only going to make one pickup for you, not like multiple pickups. We are creating this insane complexity for you. So you raised a Series B. If I recall, it was with Dragoneer, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I don't know if I... I don't know if I made the intro, but I at least took a call from Dragoneer because they were also an investor in my company. So I think Eric reached out to me, maybe, or Mark, I can't remember, one of the two. And when you pitched your Series B investors, I imagine that's around the time where you're, where you're, where you're adding the complexity and you're going from asset light to a more kind of robust, verticalized platform. Did you pitch the new investors and say, this is what we're doing? So did you identify the investors that believed in that vision? Is that kind of how that, that happened when you ended up closing your Series B? Yeah, you're correct. I was completely straightforward of on what was the vision and what we intended to do. So we said, okay, like we started with this Uber for Motorboy, now let's go add on creating this UPS 4.0. And this is why I need capital. I will need to open sorting centers. I will need to open small hubs. I will need to finance the ramp up of these assets because this is the complexity when oh, this is the financial complexity when you when you open a financial oh, sorry a, a sorting facility you need to think a few years in advance so I'm buying you know, the machinery the, the equipment to be able to process like 100,000 packages next year but when you start there is no client, you get no demon. So, so that means that you're going to be, you're going to get a lot of 
unutilized assets and a lot of sunk costs. So, so, so we were super transparent on why we needed the money and what we intended to do with that. And it was a really good surprise for us because they, I think because they'd seen it happen at Amazon and then at Mercado Libre, they knew the drill and they completely bought not only the vision, but also like the execution and the idea of being asset intensive. So, so I feel like once again, Brian, what's important is to be like always transparent. Yeah, you're, sure you're, that you, you're that open, you find the right you're open about the challenges and you found yeah. people that believed in your ability to kind of overcome the challenges. I want to ask about this asset light versus asset heavy, because you mentioned that at the time, investors didn't really want to invest in asset heavy businesses. And then asset heavy, verticalized businesses became all the rage, right? When there was lots of capital and you raised big rounds from SoftBank and it was seen like from real estate to logistics to everything was like, go heavy and and go big. And now we're kind of seeing pullback into more asset light businesses. Of course, with a more emphasis on unit economics, how has the kind of business operation changed over the last couple of years? And particularly in the last year or two, what have focused on and made a priority? How have you been able to execute on kind of the shifting landscape? Yeah. So as you mentioned, you always get the dilemma between asset light and asset intensive. I think asset light is extremely sexy, particularly on the short term, because from day one, your unit economics can look great when you're asset intensive from day one. And when day two or day 600, like unit economics look terrible. Uh, and they think that this is why like vision m- matters. If we get back in time and go back to eBay versus Amazon in 1998, everyone loved eBay. Every, everyone bashed Amazon. And if you fast forward everything, uh, Amazon had this vision of, of like building this logistics infrastructure, building this distribution network uh, with the long-term vision that on the long term it will allow them to create an edge and a mod. And I think on the long term they were right, but yeah, it requires a lot of vision and a lot of confidence from the founder. So yeah, in the Chile, asset light, in our case for Paul's was great to maximize the economics on the short term and I know asset size business, we were already profitable. We were printing money actually out of it. And how do you choose to sacrifice it to, to build something on the long run? So I think the vision is important. Of course, as you mentioned, you get these waves of investors being, having more appetite or less appetite for asset light versus intensive. But I think this comes and goes. And I think this is why like the importance of vision. Like right now, everyone seems to be a bit allergic to being asset intensive. But eventually, like the interest rate is going to drop. People will, a lot of people actually, investors realize that it's a great way to build defensibility. So, so as soon as, let's say, interest rates drop below 3%, like investors come back again. So, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I think in the end, your ability to invest or not in an asset intensive business is really a function of, of the cost of capital. So, so I think we were super lucky, as you mentioned, to ride this wave of, uh, of, of quantitative easing and really low interest rate, it allows us to, to, to raise a lot of capital. We kept mo- most of this capital in the bank account as we speak. And for us, but was the idea, let's leverage this moment. Let's get as much cash as we can to be sure that we can deploy this capital over time in CapEx and really build the network. Yeah. So if you were to describe the phase of the business, it's like, okay, 
early days, you're just, you're focused on like a super finite problem that you're solving. You're focused on asset light. You're building kind of a profitable business in the beginning. And then you, your neck, the next era is, okay, let's go full stack. Let's verticalize more. Let's asset more intensive and we'll build a deeper motor on our business because we're solving more of the complex problems. It's much more complex what you did the second phase, right? Would you describe the kind of the third phase now is like, We've built an amazing company and product, and now we are focused more on optimization. How would you describe this next era? And then what do you think the future looks like? If you take a simple review, I think like up until 2021, we went from 2015 to 2021, we were in construction mode. So we went from operating in 15 cities to 4,000 cities, and we created an incredibly complex logistics network. So, so. We created this. It was tough, a lot of learning, but we did it. And now, of course, if, since 2021, we are much more in optimization mode. So, so we created it. Now, but let's fine tune our financial metrics, make sure that we drive operational efficiency, make sure that the quality is always constant everywhere in the country. And it can be complex to always get consistency. I think it's a simple way to look at our history, but I think what's important as a company, is to be able to be ambidextrous. So, so, so to be able to, to work on optimization and the importance of financial discipline, operational excellence, of rationalization, and we need that, but also to, to balance that with keep dreaming, keep building products that our clients will want in the future. So, so I think this is an exercise we are doing and we are doing well. Yeah. I have a quick, just a kind of a more of a personal question around like the, you mentioned a lot about like the importance of being transparent and hum- humility is a, an important quality for curiosity and learning, which I totally subscribe to. What's the most humbling experience you've had as a founder? I think the more humbling experience where I really like didn't sleep is why in the series B and the series C, we were running out of cash, we literally like two weeks of cash. And at the same time, because we did some mistakes around repricing, we were paying our partners. We were getting like big protests from the drivers in Sao Paulo. So, so we went in this situation where our drivers went from loving us to hating our guts in one day. We were running out of cash because we lacked the drivers. We could not perform our deliveries. So, so our clients hated us. And this is the moment where you get no cash. You need to make for payroll. Drivers hate your guts. Clients start hating your guts like you don't sleep well at night. And then of course, you, know, you think of all the mistakes you made. I mean, yeah, you are too confident in thinking you would get the cash that easily. You are too arrogant in the way you reprise the driver and the way you communicated it. So yeah, it was deep. It was brutal. And, uh, but we were like, I think at the moment we were a bit lucky. We managed to, to close our series C like at the final minute of the game. And then there was a lot of learning for this moment after series C. We thought, okay, let's never rely on venture capital again. Let's be much more respectful when dealing with the drivers. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, in a few months, we managed to break even the business. Actually, like we were a bit that positive. We were generating cash and. Everything was doing well. And this is precisely when like a third bank came along and said like, Hey man, do you want some extra money to fuel your, your endeavor? You know, so, so it was a, 
huge ups and downs. You went from being completely broke and saying, I'm going to break even everything. And then do you want this a a train of cash? And perhaps in retrospect, it was not the best idea to take this train of cash, but it was the end of 2015. This particular week of no cash in the bank account and uh, unrest from the driver was a really critical moment. I didn't sleep very deeply this moment of my life. I think it's important for founders to hear that because there's a lot of founders right now that are having struggling raising capital. And I remember in, at Vivarao, we had $87 in the bank account and 25 people in the early days, 25 people in the team and no idea how we were going to make payroll. So how were you able to pull it out at the end when you were able to kind of eke out the round? And what were the key things that learned from that besides not getting to the point where you have your on fumes and depending on investors? Uh, besides that, what did you learn and how did you pull it out? I think it was a mix of perseverance. So, so I think it would, I mean, I could have collapsed myself as, a, as an individual because it was too much to take. So this is why uh, so, so, so first lesson was to take care of mental health, meditating, always do a bit of exercise, talk to someone if needed. So, so, so managed to hold and it's important to be able to learn, to hold and to create the routine to be able to hold an individual in this very critical moment. So first to be able to hold. Second thing was to and to persevere, so I kept on pitching and taking questions of investors at 2 a.m. and sending spreadsheets and explaining why by A, B, and C will like solve everything, etc. So it's a lot of perseverance, and I think a bit of luck. To be honest, I think we were happy to find in in Microsoft, the IFC, and our existing investors like this willingness to keep on funding the company. But yeah, we were also very lucky. So so so, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. Because of course. <laughs> so let's fast forward to today. I know that you're focusing on kind of your own, you're going internal. Walk me through the transition from going from CEO to chairman. And were investors upset that you were leaving? Difficult to say. To be honest, when I took the decision that for me it would be, I need to unwind. Was in December of 2021, actually, November, December. Was the peak season of of Logie and my baby son Noah was was at the hospital in one year one month and a half. It was not a great moment for him. It was between life and death, and at the same time I was receiving all the crazy things from the peak of the end of the year. And for me, it was the moment when I realized okay, I need to unwind a bit, to look at things a bit differently. To, it's not sustainable to work that much, to not to take care that much of your family. So first, you need the insight, and it's tough, I guess. For you to say, it. I don't want to be CEO because there is a lot of hubris and ego and the power which comes with the CEO position. And also like the adrenaline, the thrill of taking the decision. I mean, I think it becomes a bit of an addiction over time. So, uh, but to recognize it was important. And what was important was the transition. So to pick up the right person, to groom him into the role, to... And to be sure that in the end, I will be still close to logging. So I'm still there as executive chairman. I take care of it. I can focus on the part which I like the most, to be honest, vision and what we build in the, on the long run. How long was the transition and how do you, as the founder, empower the CEO and not kind of be that lurking hand that's like trying to have the puppet strings there? 
how has that been for you and what have you learned about yourself in that process? To be honest, it was like super tough at first to let it go. So even after I left, I was doing one-on-ones with my former team every week. So every two weeks, I wanted to be knowing what was going on and giving a second opinion. And I realized it was really toxic. It was not good because somehow it was disempowering the existing CEO. So, so, so learning to let it go is tough, but it's important. While you're gone, I mean, to, to have the discipline of keeping yourself like active in the board, but trying to distance yourself from the operation. I think it's the healthy thing to do. Although your heart and your intuition tell you not to do it, I think it's the right thing to do, you know. So, but it's tough, it's tough because it's saying child to your baby boy, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Who did you talk to before you made the transition and what advice did you gather and did you listen to the advice? The person I listened the most was my mom. Like she told me, like, I've never seen you so tired in your life. And then she told me a, a message, but she sent me a message written by Steve Jobs on his final days explaining how somehow he was proud of everything he had done, but he was like really sad and, and angry that he didn't spend more time with his family. And in the end, but it's just what matters the most. So, so I think for me, it was the ultimate advice on why. And how to do it, not how, but once you understand the why, then the how becomes natural. So, so, so I think in that case, the good advice was from my mom, actually. Yeah, I think that if you look around the people in the world that have the, your best interest, right? And like yeah. self, selfless interests, like mom has got to be at the top of the list. And so, so anyways, you made this transition and now you're, it sounds like you went from those one-on-ones to, peeling away from that and giving more space to the CEO. Um, how long did the transition take from where you realized you need to probably create space for the CEO? And then how has that been going? So I think overall it takes, yeah, from the decision to actually like let it go, it takes one year if you want to do it right. And so far it's doing great. I mean, the company is thriving. I mean, we put a CEO, a long friend of mine, Thibaut, who has been our CFO doing years for that. He, he co-founded and was the CEO of Dafici, which is the biggest fashion retailer e-commerce in Latam. And that's great because Thibaut and I really get, first we got trust, we worked together doing years and we really got complementary profiles. Sometimes I'm more in the clouds, in the vision, in, in in the long-term dream and, uh, and Chibo is a born and practical and really focused executor, which takes operational efficiency very seriously. So, 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 so I think what's important when you create a team is diversity and neurodiversity. You need to make sure that you assemble people who somehow think together to extract the best of all the people and the tandem between Chibo and I, I think We've got amazing diversity. We managed to complement ourselves and the results for the company are amazing. So, so, so we were fortunate to, to have a really strong balance sheet. We managed to increase margin and operational efficiency even quicker than we thought. So, so, so far so great. I know that you're in this kind of introspection phase and you're focused on meditation. Your son, right? How old's your son now? A year and a half? Two years old now. Two years old. So. Super high quality time with the family. My guess is that you'll have an itch to scratch. If I know the pattern of entrepreneurs 
And, and maybe I'm projecting a little bit on you because I, I'm speaking about my personal experience, but having seen the pattern of other entrepreneurs that have gone through a similar process to you, very high intensity, high degree of success, and the dopamine hit the, that, that exists, maybe you'll go back and do something and maybe you'll just reconstruct how you do it so that it's more sustainable and, you know, less kind of overwhelming and, but, Talk to me a little bit about what your thoughts are for the future and how Fabian is going to put his energy into the next challenge and what do you anticipate that'll look like? I think your projection is right. I can stay in this meditation quality time mode for a while. I think it's, it's important. I think for sure I will start channeling my energy elsewhere. I just don't know where it's going to be. Uh, so I'm... To be honest, I'm policing myself, trying not to think about things and not to take meetings and not to, because I know myself, as soon as I like something, an idea, I start to be a bit obsessed about it. Of course, you like to think that uh, next time you do it, you will be more map, you will be more balanced uh, and you won't be that obsessed and you will manage to, to do everything at the same time. But the truth, I guess, Perhaps it's a sad truth for me, but when you start something, I guess you really need to put a really high level of intensity during the first month, the first year. Otherwise, I fear it's going to be like less successful. So, so, so this is well, as we speak, I'm trying not to get into something because I know that eventually when I go to something, it's going to be bold and it's going to be intense. And so I'm taking a few more months here. That's not Sorry for being a bad influence on you. The perhaps you're the good one. This yeah. is how my man works. I, I do think that <laughs> if I can give you a little bit of hope here, like I have become better at balancing like my personal life. I took a vacation during Semana Santa, which I don't think I ever did in the past. And I, I was able to almost disconnect fully, like at least for maybe a couple of days I did, but I did manage to get a few things done. I, I think we have a very similar experience. And having had a transition from CEO to chairman and then taking a six month kind of sabbatical or maybe a year, I don't even know how long it was. Maybe it was even longer if you consider that I wasn't CEO for three, three years when, by the time we sold. I think I just want to give you a little bit of hope that it's definitely possible. You, but you have to be super intentional. Like you, you finding your purpose and finding things to put your creative energy into is like, is really important too, right? And it's just about being able to police yourself the right way. And you'll probably swing the pendulum at points. Like last month during the whole SVB thing, I mean, I developed like physical sickness from the stress of everything. And we were launching a product at the same time. And I was wow. recording for Shark Tank. And I was like, there was four things that were just super overwhelming that happened. And yeah, I found myself like burning the midnight oil and bring the candle at both ends. But then you know, there was a vacation around the corner and I kind of regained my energy and then I'm kind of getting back in the swing of things. So I think that you'll be fine. I have confidence. And I think that it's, it'd be too much of a waste for you to not put your energy into something. But my advice to you would be unsolicited here would be this next thing that you do, you'll find meaning in everything you do. But I think give yourself the extra time to really feel passionate about it because you, you're a creative brain. And you can probably get excited about many things. And so I think that being very selective about the thing that you want to put your energy into, I think will s s save 
the potential of burnout because the more passionate you are about the problem, the more likely you are to endure when things get really crazy, which they will. Um, so I think combining the capacity to gauge like how to be long-term in your thinking and not overwhelm yourself and kind of space things out a little bit while at the same time addressing a problem that you just deeply care about and you feel like is centered around like your passion. I think those will be two key ingredients for you. So sorry for the unsolicited advice. Wow. And I could not say it better. I think you are completely right. Thanks, bro. It's going to be fun, man. Well, listen, I want to offer up any conversations if you want to have another chat about where, you know, when the time is right. I think the family focus, you don't get those first two years back with your son. And it was this, around the same time that my kids were like four and two and I got to walk them to school and those kind of things. So it's super hard. You mentioned the ego, man, because your identity is so connected with like you, who you are. And it's super hard. You're like, I'm the CEO of this company. It's successful. I gave up financial upside. There's all these things, but I can tell you right now, man, you're disciplined to make that decision. You will thank yourself like for decades because those sacrifices, you, you don't get those back. Exactly. So exactly. I'm excited to see what you end up doing. And I'd love to be closer to you in that process. And count on me if, if you want to brainstorm about anything. I think that your experience is super unique. And I would just encourage you to get closer to Latitude because I know that you care a lot about the ecosystem. We're both foreigners, right? We lived in Brazil for a long time. And I think that similarly, your experience, you were captivated by Brazil, the beauty of like the that I know that you spent a fair amount of time. That's where you're doing some of your meditating uh, on the beach there. It's an amazing country and it's an amazing part of the world. And it's an area that I really want to reinvest in, not just in, ca in capital, but in like energy, people, advice, network, and elevating the next generation. And so we would love to have you be involved in some degree in any kind of any capacity that you're willing to. So if you're looking for a way to ease back in without any commitment, <laughs> Please, please pick up the phone anytime and shoot me a WhatsApp. Right. Thanks a lot for the invitation. I'm flattered. Huge respect and huge kudos for what you're building, Brian. And now I'm going back to university three months to learn something I always wanted to learn. I'm going a, a deep crash course on machine learning, Python, how to program some stuff myself. But as soon as I'm over with university mode, it's learning mode. For sure, I'm going to ping you. Let's have dinner when you're <laughs> done with that and maybe a little bit of wine and philosophical thoughts about the future. Great. Let's All right, man. Right. Thanks so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you in the next episode.